Welcome everyone to this new episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK and the Changing Europe. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of the UK and the Changing Europe, and I'm delighted today to be joined by the Most Reverend Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury. Justin, thank you so, so much for doing this. Thank you. Now, we've got a lot to talk about, not least your book, Reimagining Britain, which I very, very much enjoy reading. I usually resent having to read things for podcasts, but actually on this occasion, I rather enjoyed it. And I want to come back to the book and talk about it later on. But as we are who we are, I thought we'd start with Brexit. And it was interesting that you came out in favour of Remain a couple of weeks before the referendum. Did you did a lot of soul searching go into that in the sense of whether you thought you should intervene publicly? Yes. And um, I suspect that if I had to do it again, I wouldn't say where I was coming from. I had this quite naive view that as I was writing about it, I ought to declare an interest. And I was very careful, of course, to say what I think shouldn't have any impact on what how people decide. But as everyone around me told me at the time, they won't print that bit. They'll just print the bit that says, I am going to vote Remain and imply that I, therefore, I'm a diehard Remainer and everyone should do what I do. So I do rather regret being public on that. And a, a few years later, there were reports that you talked to a number of MPs about creating a citizens' assembly to avoid a no-deal outcome. And I know you were subjected to some quite harsh criticism from the Brexit side of the debate. Were you surprised by the levels of criticism that that attracted? I wasn't surprised. I had conversations with a number of MPs responding to them. I mean, they came to me from both sides saying we heard that the our ability, this was during the period when um, uh, Theresa May was prime minister, and they were saying both sides have lost the ability to talk to the other. Is there any chance you could chair a citizens' assembly? Because by that time, I'd been quite clear that the referendum had happened. That's the end of it, as far as I was concerned. Mm. We were clearly going to Brexit. So there was a question uh, from both sides, would I chair a citizens' assembly to see if we could find a better... It wasn't in order to avoid a no deal. It was to avoid a crash out no deal. If people chose a no deal, that's fine. But an accidental no deal, because we hadn't managed to agree anything between us, uh, was the aim of, of that if it had gone forward. And then, fortunately, it wasn't necessary uh, in the sense that there was a change of prime minister, which I'm not saying that that was fortunate or unfortunate, but it meant that politics moved on and uh, there was a very different tone not in the division so much as in the clarity of our direction. Okay, it's interesting you say that. I remember talking to people like Rory Stewart back in the autumn of uh, 2019 and being rather sort of perplexed that he would say, we need a citizens' assembly so we can agree Theresa May's deal. And my, my suspicion was always, if you're having a citizens' assembly, you shouldn't go into it wanting a particular outcome. You've got to go into it and listen to what the people say. I think citizens' assemblies are tend to work, it seems to me, better in smaller countries. I think they haven't been shown to make a big difference at the national level in a country the size of the United Kingdom, whereas they've been shown to make a significant difference in places like the Republic of Ireland, uh, in Norway, in other places around the world where there's a much smaller population. And I think they absolutely have to be neutral. I was insisting that if we had a citizens' assembly, the leadership should be balanced between Remain and Brexit, and that there was no predetermined outcome, because there was simply no way it would work otherwise. Do you think it's small countries or do you think it's countries that aren't excessively polarised? 
I think it's probably both. I think a citizens' assembly is easier to assemble, easier to bring together in a representative way in a smaller population. But I think also there's a level of polarization where you know you're you're really into reconciliation, of which a citizens' assembly is one tool, but you need other, to use others of the tools. I don't think we got to that point. I think we could have done it in the UK, but it would have needed strong government backing. Are you concerned about the levels of polarisation that have characterised the country? I remain pretty concerned about them. I think COVID has, and the lockdown, has chucked the cards up in the air so high that they've not all really come down and we don't know how they're going to fall. And one of the, I suppose, silver linings in, in an extraordinarily dark cloud of polarisation and in an even darker cloud of the huge suffering caused by COVID has been it's focused people on other things. It's focused them much more on community, much more on how you work together, how you support each other. And I think people have just had enough taste of that, that we may be making much faster progress in depolarizing than we thought we were. I mean, one of the things you've spoken about and you write about in your book mm. is the way in which the Brexit process raised the danger of, as you put it, succumbing to our worst instincts over immigration. In the book, you talk about the danger of introspection, xenophobia and self-pity. That being said, however, one of the interesting things about post-referendum Britain is that since we made that decision to leave the European Union, concern about immigration has fallen quite markedly. Uh, so it, do you think you might have got that wrong? That actually, in a way, deciding to take back control was the thing we needed to do to quell precisely those sorts of instincts. I've been watching that with some interest. I think it has made a big difference for the moment. But levels of hostility to immigration are still quite high by historic standards. The government is still very clear about the need to tighten up on immigration. Our treatment of asylum seekers is certainly, I, I, I've been quite clear about this over the years, I don't think is as it should be, and is not even as it should be in self-interested terms. I mean, it's, you know, we, we've, we've discovered in the last few months that amongst people in the asylum system were numerous nurses and doctors and who could have been deployed mm. very, very happily, but the system really wasn't geared up for that. And certainly with the fact that as Archbishop of Canterbury, my own diocese, my own area of the church, is in geographical area is, is East Kent. And so really on the front line of the small boats coming across, there's still a lot of anxiety about that. And, you know, we're aware of uh, very significant increases in border patrol activity and so on and so forth. I've never been convinced that there was huge resentment in most places, there are very clear exceptions, about individual immigration. Mm -hmm. It was that sense of huge numbers. And I think you may be right that Brexit has changed the attitude to that. But whether that lasts, because of course, you know, we've seen a very sharp change in the number of people coming from Europe, and in fact, net decrease now, but we haven't seen a change in the number of people coming from other parts of the world. I suppose we'll have to wait and see what happens after COVID, because of course, there's not much in the way of international migration going on during lockdown. Well, there isn't, there isn't. I think we need to to bear in mind that in the world today, we have 75 million IDPs or refugees across the world. In August 1945, it was 22 million. And that scale 
of people who've been displaced, together with climate change, the increasing difficulty of food and the economies in many parts of the tropics, particularly of the central, the hottest parts of the world, means that this is not a problem that's going to go away. We actually have to find a way of addressing movements of people and migration in the long term. And we have to find resilience and a clear agreed national approach and in fact global approach to it because it's going to come back and each time it comes back it'll be more difficult to deal with and sooner or later huge movements of people lead either to conflict or to change or both. Now there's been some recent social science work that has shown that a majority of Anglicans backed Brexit and I suppose my question is in two parts on this. One, do you feel do you feel in any sense that you coming out against Brexit altered your relationship with that congregation. And, and secondly, one of the reasons why social scientists think this is the case is because the Church of England fosters an attachment to specifically English heritage and national identity. Does it worry you that English and British identities could be seen to be coming into tension with each other? It worries me more that English and Anglican identities could be coming into conflict with each other. You need to remember that the Church of England is a small percentage of the Anglican communion, that the average Anglican is a woman in her 30s on less than $4 a day, living in sub-Saharan Africa, probably working in agriculture, on, on subsistence agriculture, and with a 50% chance of living in an area of persecution or um, civil war or local conflict. Now, I think one of the constant tensions within the Church of England has that sense, uh, the historic sense that we are the Church of and for England in the strict sense, but we are actually part of the global church. And that sense of being part of the global church is much more demanding. It brings into very sharp focus things like the parable of the Good Samaritan. It brings into very sharp focus not only the need to love your neighbour, but to love the alien and the stranger. And if you're in parish in England, uh, where in an area where there's relatively little diversity, the issues of your local community, rightly, that's why we have the parish system, rightly will dominate. And I think there's always been that tension between the global and the local. And I think possibly, as I would say, rather than coming out in favour of Remain, being honest about being a Remainer, did distance me from quite a few Anglicans. And there's no doubt that the majority of Anglicans, as the majority of the country, were in favour of Brexit and so on. You know, I've been quite clear that not because of that, but because of the national vote. We're a democracy, we voted, move on. I think people in church have all the normal issues. So it will move on. The, are we most concerned about Brexit now? Or are we concerned about COVID? Are we concerned about schools where we educate a million people, where we do a very good job? Are we concerned about the NHS, about social care? These are housing. We're doing a lot of work on all of these. And thankfully, I think the divisive impact of Brexit, as opposed to whatever the economic impact is for good or will, the divide impact is, I think, behind us largely. I mean, you seem to suggest actually that one of the reasons that might be the case is that COVID has brought us together as communities. Would you say that's the case? I think it's had an effect in revealing our vulnerability and therefore our need for one another. That is the key thing about COVID. You know, that when you realise that 
you know, your uncle who's only in his 50s but has enjoyed his beer over the years and is a bit overweight and smoked for 15, 20 years before he gave it up and is a bit asthmatic and has type 2 diabetes, when you suddenly realise he is really, 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 really vulnerable if he catches it, it it's a it shakes people up very significantly. Now, one of the things you talk about is the fact that there is a need for a new economy following Brexit. Mm. Can you sort of put some flesh on those bones? I mean, A, why does Brexit suggest the need for a new economy? And what did you have in mind? I think the book, when I published it in 2018, it was less of a cliche there. I think in the first edition, I, I mean, the second edition came out about a month ago, but sort of revised. But the first edition, I did talk about a beverage moment there and continue to, but everyone's talking about it now. So I can't really claim that I invented <laughs> it or anything like that. And it's becoming a cliche, but there are great similarities to 1945. There are huge differences, enormous differences in our society, in its diversity, in its level of income, in its caste structure. And many, many other things. But the similarity is people look back to before COVID and they say whether we, a lot of people are saying whether we realised it or not, it wasn't very good. The inequalities that have been exposed in education, in health outcomes, in housing, those are really not very good. We're still seeing vast increase uh, that has only come back very slightly, both in capital accumulation between rich and poor and in income between rich and poor. We're still seeing chief executives of FTSE 100 companies now on near 200 times average earnings, yeah. as opposed to in the, as you know, 40 years ago, you know, 60 times or 70 times. And the new economy, I think, is about saying, first of all, the world's changed through COVID. Secondly, the next 50 years, the world is going to change even more, just unbelievably, with robotics and genetics and uh, artificial intelligence. And how are we going to be prepared for that? Will the current structure of the economy work for that? We're not training people well enough. Higher education as opposed to further education is a real shambles, and that's now been accepted. And the government is working, you know, is trying to do something about that. If you come from a particularly families, a white family on uh, free school meals, your chances of living in a coastal town or away from the big cities, your chances of coming out with five A to Cs, let alone anything higher, are really low compared to um, those not on free school meals or even on free school meals from other ethnic backgrounds. And we haven't faced these challenges about an economic system that is apparently just and that builds community and strengthens resilience to deal with the future crisis we've got to face. And without that, I think we really have very weak foundations in our society. I mean, as you say, the first edition of the book came out pre-COVID, post-Brexit, and you were talking then about the need for a new economy. One of the things I'm very curious about, because as you say, lots of people were saying this, is why did it take the Brexit referendum for us to realise this? It's not as if you know, suddenly on the 24th of June, we woke up and we were more unequal. Why was that such a wake up moment? I think it was two, it was both. It was the referendum and COVID. In other words, it was the breakdown of the existing system, the, the closure of the economy, essentially, 22% fall in second quarter of last year. I mean, just extraordinary. 
But that was con combined with, I think, rightly, one of the stronger points of the Brexit campaign was that sense of adventure. You know, here we are. We're no longer part of this great organisation, this huge organisation, bureaucracy, whatever you care to name it, market. We're quite a small country right out on our own. We've chosen to go for an exit process, which is pretty rough and on the grounds that we can be different. And we can be flexible and adaptive and able to take advantage quickly of changes in the global situation and the global economy to trade freely and well around the world. And then you look at our society and you think, well, hang on a minute, we haven't got all the tools in place for that. And that's pretty healthy. There was a, a report done by um, IPPR on the economy, which was extremely, a really real eye-opener on our lack of capacity to face the challenge of the adventure we've embarked on. We have to be positive about the future. It's no use saying, oh, well, we'll try and make the best of it. We've got to say we're out. We're not just going to make the best of it. We're really going to, to go for it. But IPPR was published looking back and saying, even without Brexit, we had huge structural problems in the economy. I mean, productivity has been one for yeah. 150 years. Therefore, both coming together, I think, has opened our minds to the need for a new economy. And it's a case of justice. I mean, after we were talking to an archbishop, forgive me for getting carried away and mentioning God, but the whole way through the Old Testament, through the Jewish scriptures, there is this profound sense of economies need to work for everyone. The economy is part of God's providence. It needs to work for everyone, not just for the toughest, the bravest and the best. In the new edition of your book, you certainly don't lack ambition or vision in the sense that you say that COVID marks a moment when we can reimagine the world. Are you optimistic that you that we will? As you say, an awful lot of people are talking about this, but equally there are people out there who say, well, we'll say this for a while and then revert back to normal afterwards. Are you, are you optimistic that we can do that? I'm hopeful. There was a Northern Ireland, uh, one of the British ministers in Northern Ireland during direct rule at the time of the um, talks about the troubles in Northern Ireland, who every time he came out of a session of talks, the journalists would say, are you optimistic, Minister? He said, no, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful. It's the combination of pressures, of pressures which means an alternative to reimagining is very dangerous indeed. The status quo is not a valid option. Look at what's happening in the States with their 1.9 trillion injection of funds from Biden. That's a big bit of reimagining. Europe is a little bit behind, I think. It has not quite got there, but I think people are looking at the situation in Africa, um, certainly the situation in East Asia, with the rise of China, the change of the population of the hegemonic powers in the world, climate change, the enormous demand for the development of a green economy for the sake of the very survival of vast numbers of people around the world. These are life or death questions. And, you know, it was um, it was Johnson, it was Samuel Johnson, wasn't it, who said that the prospect of being uh, of being hanged in a fortnight concentrates the mind wonderfully. Yeah, you know, it's not a fortnight, but it's 30 years, which in economic terms is not much more than a fortnight. And so 
I am hopeful because I think the pressures are on and we're yet to hear from people what is the real alternative to reimagining? Is the status quo viable? And growing inequality, growing inequality in arms, in the capacity to wage war, in the capacity to develop economies, in the capacity to cope with climate change, immense inequality to that and consequent vast movements of people is not a viable alternative. One of the many phrases that, that sort of caught my eye in the book was when you say that British values as often used is a phrase that seems to strike the wrong note. How so? Well, a bit like whoever, uh, the comment uh, Metternich, I think, about the Holy Roman Empire. It's neither Holy Roman nor an empire. Um, British values aren't British and they're not values. But apart from that, it's a great phrase. They're not British because we pick them up from all over the place. If anything, if you take the book Dominion seriously, there's a deep Christian root in them. They were certainly rapidly developed during the um, Enlightenment and particularly in the United States in the American uh, Revolutionary War. They're not British values. Democracy, you know, the great phrase that was trotted out, democracy, rule of law and respect for others. They're not British. We didn't operate them in the empire. When, as a colony, did you have democracy and whose law ruled? And they're not values. Values are much deeper than that. Values have to be embedded profoundly in a sense of absolutes that shape the meta-narrative under which we live. And we're all terrified of values because, you know, we're all being told that meta-narratives don't work any longer and whatever. Everyone has a meta-narrative, even if the meta-narrative is that there is no meta-narrative, and uh, which is the most dangerous one of all, because you impose it, because you believe that no one should impose anything. So the one thing you impose is a vacuum. And the values of the United Kingdom are deeply based in a very complex soup. It's a complex ecosystem of constantly adapting and have changed dramatically under the influence of immigration, large-scale changes in social custom. But deep down, you know, we still, you hear them in occasional expressions, so-and-so is a good Samaritan. Oh, he was a bit of a prodigal son. The nature of why we should care for each other, the nature of why, for instance, we debate euthanasia. Why do we not, why does anyone argue with the idea, and it's not just churches who do, that since you spend a quarter of everyone's life on average of lifetime health spending in the last six months of their life, wouldn't it be better just to chop them off a bit earlier and save everyone a fortune? And everyone says, no, that's too horrific even to consider. That's what Germany did in the 1930s with people with disabilities. And all those go, those are where we're talking about values. It's social teaching around human dignity and solidarity and issues around subsidiarity. These are values. Democracy, rule of law and respect for others are the symptoms of a good value system. Now, my final question, I, I, I think I'm going to know the answer to this one before I ask you it, but you, uh, you you once said that mixing faith and politics is worth risking one's head for. I imagine it's a risk you intend to keep on taking. Yes, there are two reasons for that. One is it's impossible not to mix them. Jesus was enormously 
political. If you're listening to this podcast, go and look up the Magnificat. It's in Luke chapter two and read the words carefully and look at their social implications. They are genuinely revolutionary. The East India Company, before the um, rebellion of 1856, banned the singing of the Magnificat because they did not in churches across the land, because they did not want the Indian population hearing that God would throw down the powerful from their seat and raise up the humble and meek. That's just one example, and there's a zillion others. And in Aristotelian terms, the polis is the body of those who make up the unit, the, the nation, the city, whichever it happens to be, depending on your moment in history, politics is how we live together. You can no more exclude religion and the church from that than you can unmix a glass of Ribena. <laughs> a great image on which to end. Justin Welby, thank you so very much indeed for taking the time to do this. Well, and, and I'm very grateful to have the opportunity. <laughs>